Join me in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we will be looking this morning at verses 1 through 20 as we continue our journey through the gospel of Luke. sermon this morning is entitled, A Savior is Born. Our key words for our worshipers in training are Savior, Birth, and Incarnation. Now, what we are looking at this morning is a very familiar passage of Scripture for everybody. So because it's so familiar, I want to do a quick overview of the text, spend uh, a few minutes looking at exactly what Luke has recorded for us. But I want to spend most of our time looking at the most important implications of the birth of Jesus Christ. In other words, the text is going to tell us that Jesus was born and how that came about. But we have to ask some questions about that. The main overarching question that we should be asking of the text this morning is why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus Christ became man and dwelt among us? So we're going to spend the majority of our time focused on answering that specific question. But first, let's make sure that we refamiliarize ourselves with the text. Luke chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, the purpose for this registration was probably the taxation of the people. Everyone was required to go to their hometown, no matter how far it was, no matter where it was, no matter what the burden would be, as we will see. Remember, Luke is a historian. So Luke is giving us all of the specific details. When was this? What was going on? It reveals a lot about the circumstances revolving around Jesus' birth. Specifically, in the first few verses here, there are a few interesting notes about Caesar Augustus. The name Augustus, it means holy or revered. And Caesar was the first of all the Roman Caesars to be given this title. It was previously, before him, it was only a title that was ever given to the Roman gods, whoever they were. But under Caesar's rule, there were, there were significant efforts by the people because they loved him so much in all that he did with them that they wanted to deify him, to make him to be a god. In fact, Caesar's birthday became to the Romans the first day on the calendar, the first day of the year, and eventually he was called Savior. In fact, an ancient inscription has been found which called Caesar Augustus the Savior of the whole world. So think of this. The Roman citizens were led to believe that their their leader, Caesar Augustus, their Caesar was God and Savior. He had their allegiance and they accepted his power and his authority. So do you see the contrast here? Over against this going on, Jesus is being born. 
Jesus, who was truly the Savior of the world. A Savior, not who would do something that was really, in comparison, small and insignificant, like saving people from opposing nations. Rather, he was coming to the world to save his people from the powerful bondage of sin and death, granting them far greater than earthly peace. Instead, he was granting them eternal peace with God. So there's no doubt whatsoever that Luke's early readers knew exactly how significant it was to read the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary in chapter 1. Remember those words. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So even here, even in these first three verses of chapter 2, when Luke is giving us a historical reference, we see the absolute enormity with which Jesus came into the world. In fact, it's so enormous that to say that he changed the world is a vast understatement. The baby that Mary had in her womb was not a Caesar. He was not a man who would become a god. He was far greater. He was the true God who had become a man. Good verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So young men with pregnant brides were not exempt from registering for taxation. So Joseph and Mary were forced to travel to Joseph's hometown in Bethlehem. That would have been a miserable journey. Just think of it. Mary was full term. She was ready to give birth any day. The journey is approximately 80 miles from where they were. Maybe she was able to ride on an animal, but even still, whatever the situation, it was dusty, it was cold. She was nowhere near her mother or anyone else who loved her, who cared for her, who would have helped her through the delivery of her first child. But we have to remember here that God's purposes are always greater than ours, and this is no exception. 700 years prior to Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem where Jesus would be born, the prophet Micah prophesied in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old from ancient days. So what at first seems to be a forced journey for a poor couple to pay taxes is actually the fulfillment of God's messianic prophecy. They weren't helpless pawns in secular history. They were under the hand of Almighty Infinite God, as we talked about last week. So the Messiah would indeed be born in tiny, insignificant Bethlehem, as was told 700 years prior. 
Look again at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I want to just say that Luke strikes me to be rather analytical. He's to the point in his descriptions. He doesn't make a very big deal about certain things that I could see myself maybe writing five pages about. Imagine everything that had gone into this moment. The angel Gabriel appearing to Mary. Jesus placed in her virgin womb. The obvious difficulties that would come with being pregnant and unwed. And then the overwhelmingly difficult travel that it took to get to Bethlehem. The the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And here we have Luke, just as a matter of fact, essentially tells us, they got there, they put their stuff down, she had a baby, she laid him in the manger because there wasn't anywhere else to stay. Eh, no big deal. <laughs> so because of the description that we have, it's very easy to miss a lot of little things here if we don't take the time to think through them. This was no standard child delivery. And don't assume that Jesus was born in a nice, stately, well-kept county fair stable. It was horrible in every way. Think of it, the smell, the smell of new birth mixed with the awful stench of animal manure, maybe some, some rotten straw. Some incredibly uncomfortable arrangements. Imagine the sweat and the pain and the blood and the cries of Mary as she delivers her child. The trembling hands of Joseph as he grasps Jesus, delivering the young God-man. In every way, the birth of Jesus isn't just unlikely. And it isn't just humble. If you think of who Jesus is and how he came into the world, it's scandalous. A leap down from heaven, a leap from all glory, from splendor and honor, born in the stench and the dirt and the insignificance of an animal's stable, laid down in an animal's feeding trough. Nothing could be lower. Nothing could have been worse for the coming of the Son of God. And in fact, it seems as though Jesus as a newborn infant couldn't have had a worse start. This is where Christianity begins though, isn't it? Jesus wasn't brought into the world with all the pomp and circumstance of a once-for-all king of the universe. He was brought into the world with a sense of need, a sense of insufficiency. And this is a great event. As insignificant as it seems, this would prove to be one of the most important events in all of human history. It is the event that we call the incarnation. That is, God being fully God, takes on human flesh and becomes fully man. It is the fixed and permanent dwelling of God in his world, not a temporary manifestation. We see that throughout the Old Testament where God makes himself present in what we call theophanies. 
But this is the permanent bodily dwelling of God. So Jesus is God incarnate, 100% God, 100% man. Theologically, this is called the hypostatic union. Jesus is not part God and part man. He isn't sometimes God and sometimes man. He isn't more God than man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. How? Good question. I don't know. (laughs) But we must keep this in mind. We must keep this in mind as we consider Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke and really as we consider Jesus throughout the Bible. The Scriptures do not give an inch on the deity of Christ, nor do they give an inch on the humanity of Christ. He was everything an infant is when he was an infant. He was everything a boy is as a boy and as a man, except for one difference is that he was completely and totally without sin. So Jesus' deity and humanity are each equally significant and necessary to understand. If we are to see Jesus in his fullness and to understand the incarnation and its significance to us. And that's really the, the wonder of it all, isn't it? The omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God becomes man as a baby. I've read a helpful analogy that aids us in understanding this a little bit better. We can think of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God prior to the incarnation as a symphony. Full of complexity, full of power. So many different elements, so many different areas of magnificence carried over the great expanse. But when he became human, he became like a folk tune, simple, shortened. And in this, he lost nothing of his Godhead. He lost nothing of his eternal character, his attributes, his absolute purity and his changeless excellence. He was still the symphony. He was still the eternal Son of God. But as a folk tune, a real man, he entered into the human situation in a way that everyone could understand. Now, of course, no symphony is infinite. Each has its genesis somewhere, while Jesus himself is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. But the picture is clear. The fullness of the complexity and variety and wonder and majesty of God exists in the simplicity and normalcy of a human life. So John explained it this way in his gospel account. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's keep reading in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly... 
There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So once again in Luke's narrative, we see God doing what seems so unlikely. To whom was the first proclamation of the Messiah's having arrived made to? Who received the first heavenly proclamation of Jesus' arrival? It wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the scribes. It wasn't a prince or a king or a Caesar. It was shepherds in a field watching over a flock. You know, the shepherds were a despised class of men. By nature of their work, they were unable to keep the Mosaic law and all the additional laws of the Pharisees in the way that they supposed it should be followed. So they were a rejected group of men. They were considered to be unclean, ungodly. One writer commented that they were often suspected of confusing thine with mine, therefore unable to give testimony in courts. But notice... What was assumed of these shepherds by everyone else clearly wasn't true, was it? We see here that God knows their hearts. It's obvious that these were godly men, devout men who knew the scriptures. Notice how the uh, the angel addresses them in verses 10 through 12. They They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They knew exactly what was being spoke of. They were all aware of what God had promised. And notice also how they respond. Let's read, pick up in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds uh, said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherd told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They see the fulfillment of what? They had been told, they rejoiced and praised God, and God is glorified. Not only in the shepherds, but also in Mary. In Mary, who who heard what was said regarding the visit of the angel to the shepherds. I want to back up just a minute, though, and look at the word of the angel used to help us to hold on to the main point of what we are looking at this morning. Look again at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news. What do we call the good news? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The angel is telling the shepherds, the good news has arrived. The gospel has come. Now he is, of course, referencing Jesus himself. Jesus is the good news. And while the angel doesn't outline exactly how the life of Jesus was going to be good news in his work to justify sinners through his own death, he does point to the great gospel work of salvation. 
the gospel that is for all the people, regardless of age, regardless of skin color, regardless of male or female, short, tall, skinny, fat, even the shepherds. The gospel is good news for all these people. The Savior of the world has come. That's exactly what the angel says in verse 11, right? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord has come and He will be the Savior of the world. Remember we said at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that if we were to give a title to the entire Gospel, we could call it Jesus, Savior of the world. The angels certainly recognized this great truth, didn't they? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Think of the angels. They knew Christ in heaven before the incarnation. They knew something of his glory and of his riches and of his majesty. And they also knew of the fall of mankind. They were fully aware of man's lawlessness as a result of Adam's disobedience. And they had been told the great news that God had, been, had provided a way of salvation for mankind. Remember Gabriel told Joseph in Matthew one twenty one, You shall call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Now how that would happen, we can only speculate as to whether or not the angels knew. But we can at least assume that the very birth of Christ in the condition of poverty in the lowest of lowly estates must have caused these angels to stand in awe of God's indescribable, marvelous love for his people that he himself would come to dwell so low. And so the words of the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, are words of angelic adoration. They desire that all of creation would sing the praise of God. They realize at the very least that Jesus would accomplish the task that the Father gave him to complete, a task to bring peace, a task to bring reconciliation between God and man. Indeed, we too should spend all of our days saying glory to God in the highest. Now, there's much more that could be said of these verses this morning, but I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about what I mentioned up front. As we consider Christ's incarnation, we should be asking the question, why? Why did he do it and why does it matter? Another way we might ask the question is this. What difference should it make in our Christian lives that the eternal Son of God became a man? Now, to be clear, we must recognize that there is no genuine Christianity that denies the Incarnation. There is no genuine Christianity that rejects the fact that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man. It's not simple enough to say that it's it's not enough to say that we just believe in Jesus. Even many agnostics and self-proclaimed atheists believe in Jesus in one sense, in that they believe that Jesus was a historical man that lived in the first century A.D. 
But genuine Christianity requires more. It requires that we believe Jesus of the Bible, the God incarnate, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us in John eight twenty four, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, this is the doctrinal test of all true religion. What do they do with Jesus? Who is he? This is why you can look at all of the cults that claim to be Christian and very boldly state that they are not what they claim to be. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, those who hold the teaching of oneness theology that denies the simultaneous existence of the Trinity, all of these are anti-Christian cults that deny that Jesus is who He says He is as the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man. So to deny Jesus as the eternal God is to deny Christianity. So the issue of the incarnation is very important, isn't it? It's not enough to simply say that we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus as incarnate God, fully divine, fully man. Now, I want to answer the big question first. Namely, what is the main purpose of the birth of a Savior? The question itself maybe answers itself. I want to look also at a few examples of the difference it makes for us in our daily lives. So why? Why the incarnation? Well, most ultimately, most supremely, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, became man to die for his people. And while he probably didn't understand the full implications of what he was proclaiming, the angel said to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. That's a loaded phrase. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 helps us. Verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There it is right there. Jesus took on flesh and blood that by dying he might destroy Satan and deliver mankind from slavery to sin and death. This was the primary purpose of Jesus' humanity. This is the ultimate overarching purpose of the incarnation. Without Jesus coming to die, any other implication of the incarnation is useless. Jesus Christ in his humanity came to die for his people. Now, Jesus Christ in his humanity also became justly liable to death. In other words, when Jesus became man, it became right for him to die. I know that maybe sounds wrong. I will help you to see this. Think back to the garden and what God told Adam in the garden regarding what was forbidden. If you eat of the tree, 
then you will surely what? Die. So the penalty is death. Same thing Paul tells us, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So now you say, wait a minute. Death happens because sin happens. And Jesus was sinless and was born of a virgin and therefore did not inherit the sin nature of Adam. And if you're thinking that right now, and I know some of you are, you're absolutely correct. But there's more. Jesus became what Adam became and what we are from our birth. Therefore, it became right that Jesus should die. Now, I realize fully that if Jesus were a sinner, there'd be no question whatsoever as the rightness of such a question. But Jesus was morally without flaw in his heart and in his life, completely and totally innocent. So how can I say that it was right that Jesus should die? Because something happened that made it right for God to inflict death upon his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you hear it from me all the time. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it? In the incarnation, Jesus was justly liable to death because he was made by the Father to be sin on our behalf, and in doing so, His righteous standing before the Father was credited to the account of his people. Let me simplify it for us. God the Father took all of the sins of his people, me and you, the lie you told this morning, the lustful uh, thought you had in your heart just five minutes ago, maybe the money you stole from your co-worker's desk last week, the harsh word you spoke to your child last night, the lighthearted way in which you used God's name. All of these sins and every other sin that we have ever committed or ever will commit was placed upon Jesus Christ as though He was the one who did it, thus making Him liable to death, making Him the recipient of the penalty of sin making him the one who would die to appease God's perfect penalty of wrath. So the wrath of God was poured on Jesus in full measure for all of his people, for every one of our sins, and his perfect fulfillment of the law. His obedience to all that God has commanded. His moral perfection was counted to us as our own. So our sin was credited to Jesus and he became legally responsible for it. And his righteousness is credited to us and freed us from the penalty of our sin. Now let's be clear, Jesus didn't deserve to die, but it was right for him to die. This is the great exchange. This is the beautiful essence at the center of the gospel. My sins traded for his righteousness. And let's remember that this was all voluntary on the part of Jesus. Before the foundations of the earth, Jesus the Son made an eternal covenant with the Father. 
We call it the covenant of redemption or the covenant of grace. The covenant between the Father and the Son simply was this. Jesus in his humanity would voluntarily embrace death in exchange for the redemption of a people who would be made to be his bride, the church. It's amazing. And the writer of Hebrews explains it to us in chapter 12. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 tells us that Jesus gave, voluntarily gave himself for us. And all of this comes together, the incarnation and the death of Jesus, all of this comes together beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul so wonderfully weaves together all of these great realities to show the significance of the great work of Jesus. He writes, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the incarnation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's beautiful, isn't it? So why the incarnation? Why did God become man? Well, if he didn't, we would continue to walk in bondage to sin and death. The Lord Jesus Christ became man to die for his people. That's the purpose of his birth. And that's what the angel proclaimed to the shepherds. A savior is born. So very quickly, three things and then we're done. Three ways the incarnation will affect the life of a Christian in a daily manner. First, the incarnation gives us great cause for worship. Jesus' coming into the world, wrapped in flesh, fully God and fully human, is a work of God for which he is to be worshipped. God the Father prepared a body for God the Son in which he dwelt, in which he fulfilled the law, in which he suffered, in which he died, in which he rose from the dead. The incarnation truly is a miraculous and magnificent work of God for which he is to be worshipped. Because a Savior was born, we have a great hope, we have a sure foundation of assurance, and therefore it should cause us worship. So the incarnation gives us great cause for worship. Secondly, the incarnation gives us something to use. When Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the Father on his throne. So what we have is a real man with real power and real authority enthroned at the right hand of God. And what does the Bible call him? 
our advocate, our mediator. He is right there for us. He has rescued us and He is pleading for us. We have one in heaven who knows us intimately, one who cares for us, one who who died for us. He has promised to be our mediator before the Father. So the question is whether or not are are we using Him? He doesn't condemn us in our weakness. He pities us. He sympathizes with us. Christian, did you have a difficult week of sin? Did you succumb to your temptations? Was your intimacy with the Lord lacking? Jesus Christ is in heaven and He knows and He cares. Are you using Him? Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. No one understands like Jesus. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what do we do? He writes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. That is the key. Are you drawing near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help you in your time of need? The incarnation made this possible. The birth of our Savior as a man made this possible. Jesus Jesus endured the temptation every single one of us has endured and yet He did it without sinning. He will give you the greatest counsel And unlike any earthly counselor, he can transform your heart. Turn to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith and who can truly sympathize with you in your weakness. The incarnation gives us that tool, gives us our mediator, gives us our advocate. Third and lastly, the incarnation gives us something to imitate. Now, I could spend an entire sermon here, but I want to keep it brief and hope you spend time this afternoon with your family working out these implications. Now, the incarnation itself is not something that we can replicate, obviously. It was a unique work of God that we recognize as existing within those things that God has done which man cannot do. But there are elements of the incarnation that we should look to to imitate. And the Bible gives us clear direction as to what those things are. I want you to look with me. I've already recited it, but let's look at Philippians chapter 2 together. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. We'll find here two ways we are called to imitate Christ in the incarnation. These two ways, namely, are our relationship to saints in the church and our relationship to unbelievers in the world. 
First, as we relate to saints in the church, we're just going to run through these. Each one of these we could spend our time discussing. So remember, perhaps write these down, discuss them this afternoon. How we relate to saints in the church. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so we have here an encouragement to unity to be of one heart, to be of one mind, seeking to be unified, seeking to be at peace with one another. Verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Self-forgetfulness. We imitate the incarnation when we put others before ourselves. No doubt this was what Christ did in giving himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And we can imitate Christ when we are forgetful to self and instead think of others more highly. This is our doing of the great command to love our neighbor as ourselves, counting them as more significant than us. So unity, self-forgetfulness, look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have a mind like Christ. It's the very thing we are urged to do when the Apostle Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We imitate the incarnation when we have minds that are being renewed daily, conformed to the word of God through the means of grace that God has provided for us. Verses 6 through 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Self-sacrificing unselfishness. There is no greater example of one who unselfishly sacrificed himself than Jesus. He made himself to be at the lowest that he could exist. And he brings his people to dwell at the highest. No man has greater love than this, that he'd give his life for his friends. This aspect of the incarnation should lead us to pray, God, harden me against myself. Give me a heart and a desire to love my neighbor as you have loved me. This example of the incarnation leaves no room for setting limits on how far we will go to stoop for others. And when we imitate Christ in self-sacrificing unselfishness, we no longer look to others in the church expecting to be ministered to, but rather we seek to spur others on to love and good deeds by our own love and good deeds. Who looks low that I might lift them up? Who can I weep with? Who can I rejoice with? Who can I pray with? Who needs me to love them? 
Jesus was born into the world, and in the incarnation, he gives us this example of how we can relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, also shown in this is how to relate to unbelievers in the world. Christ came on a mission to seek and save the lost, to bring many sons to glory as we sing, to be poured out like a drink offering. In John 17, Jesus, as he prays to the Father on behalf of his children, he gives this great implication. He prays to the Father and says, As you sent me into the world, send them. In other words, we have to get close to sinners. You're not going to catch it. We need to walk closely with them. We have to have more of Christ's self-sacrificing unselfishness about us. It's, it's not easy. I admit that fully. It gets hairy at times. But without Christ sacrificing himself, there would be no incarnation nor would there be any success whatsoever in the global task. Just think of all the great missionaries that we know of who have given their lives to bring the gospel to the world had they simply said, it's too hard. It puts me all out of sorts. It's too much of a sacrifice. The global task would never be completed. But we are called to live and dwell among those who are without Christ, calling them to repentance and faith in the gospel, seeking and praying that God would save those that we know and are around and those whom we dwell among that are lost. So you see, the fact that a Savior was born, as insignificant as it may have seemed while he was laying in a manger wrapped in cloths, the daily implications of it are many for us. Most importantly, we rejoice that a Savior was born. He who was born to rescue us from the power and dominion and slavery of sin and set us free to walk in the newness of life because He was poured out like a drink offering. So this morning I pray that our praise would be to God for the incarnation. That we would praise Jesus for stooping so low with his people whom he would exalt to dwell with him forever so high. He became nothing that we would inherit everything. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we rejoice. We thank you for the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We rejoice that a Savior was born, was born to live a perfect, sinless life in obedience to the law, in fulfillment of the law on our behalf. We thank you that Christ descended so low that he would exalt his people to be so high. And as a result, that you have given him a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Father, I pray that you give us 
the heart of Jesus. Give us the mind of Jesus that we would live and dwell among each other with unity in selflessness. We would cast aside our pride and our desire to be served by others and we would love our neighbor as ourself. And that we as your people would live and dwell among those who are far from Christ, calling them to repentance, showing them in selfless love, sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ that has manifested itself in the sacrifice of his people. Help us, O God, to live out these great implications of the Incarnation. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death and resurrection on our behalf. Cause us to praise you because of this great truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.